재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Our next guest was doing some pretty impressive air DJing here in the studio. <laughs> during, during that. Uh, this is Monday, and we do rock scholar, as in ROK scholar, in an effort to make you more of an expert on all things Republic of Korea or rock. Basically, we take something you probably already know, at least on the surface, and we dig down into the reasons, the rationale, the whys, the wherefores. And to help us do that is our favorite air DJ and Korea nerd. <laughs> as he describes himself online. Also, he's our regular Saturday expat Intel voice. It's Alex Sigrist. Hey, Alex. Kurt, how's it going? Going well, going well. I have a new career in Air, <laughs> DJ, air DJ. I can back you up on Air Bass because I'm really good <laughs> on that too. So today, oh, man. as I understand, we're kind of uh, taking... What we already know, as we usually do, mm-hmm. which is that uh, Korean is really, really hard. Oh, uh, yeah. For, for, especially for English speakers who are trying to learn. But why is it hard? Uh, and as uh, we're going to start just by talking about a few nuts and bolts of language acquisition and then get into the real nitty gritty of why uh, Korean specifically is hard for us. Yeah, I think this will be interesting because we've all kind of had that, especially foreigners, if you're at Itaewon late at night, you could, oh, Korean's hard because uh, grammar different. Yeah. And then, but we don't really, <laughs> we can't really kind of verbalize that or say it in a more, let's say, intelligent way. Sure. So I'm hoping that today we kind of talk about, uh, this is partially my theory too, because there aren't studies specifically on why it's hard for an English person to learn Korean. So we've had to mix a whole bunch of ideas together. So expats, next time somebody asks you why your level of Korean is so horrible, you will have a very intelligent justification. (laughs) Yeah, but don't use it as an excuse. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, take us through it. How do we start? All right. Well, uh, just to get the background of it, I mean, things we know. Right now we have 80 million people that use uh, Korean, mostly centered in uh, parts of China, obviously Korea and L.A., (laughs) like L.A. U.S. I'd say... Altaic language. Altaic is the language of Central Asia. It's like a proposed family of languages. All right. Uh, and basically, oh, and also I should mention, by the way, there isn't actually a historical, no one really knows exactly where Korean came from. It is really a mix of everything, it seems like, everything around it. Yeah. Uh, and its own, of course, in uh, its own language also sprang up too. So it's a mix of Korean culture mixed with a Japonic language, the Proto-Altaic, and Chinese, everything together. Well, via this Altaic sort of family, there have been similarities found with, you know, Finnish, right. Turkish, mm-hmm. uh, kind of affinities between these disparate languages. Yeah. Gr- grammatical similarities, uh, fusional morphology, and even the pronouns that they use. Mm. But we're going to kind of take it a different way for the thought experiment. You have to you bear with me, get into the thought experiment, because after it, it'll kind of make sense as we get into our first point of why it's different. So for our thought experiment today, let's get just a little bit imaginative. All right. Today, we are in the kitchen. You're in the final round of a master chef competition. You look your opponent in the eye and you've got this. And imagine, 
You're ready to cook your best dish, whatever it may be. Maybe you're a master at pasta or pizza or soup or some Korean dish. And you get ready. And the MC comes out and brings your ingredients. Uh, purple leaves, a powder that looks like dirt, a fruit you've never seen before, a cr- clean, clear, gelatinous substance, and some orange shavings that sort of look like paprika. How do you start? All right, so is that a thought experiment taking place in a kitchen in the year 2080, or...? It's when <laughs> it is whenever you would like. Okay. But so let's let's talk about. It. We're gonna get into this after we get off into stats. But the premise of this is Korean is so different that the the basic elements that make up the Korean language uh-huh. are extremely different for let's say Americans or people from England or Australia. We're talking about using in a completely different. Chemistry, almost. Oh, yeah. So when you're, you know, when you when you're cooking and you're just given ingredients that you don't know what to do with, that's basically what we were given when we came to Korea. If we had no experience in um, these proto-Altaic languages, it's tough. Got it. So the purple leaves, the powder that looks like <laughs> dirt, the orange shavings. I tried, and, I tried to make it as confusing. Well, as I mean, possible. those are those are uh, sort of roughly parallel to syntax and morphemes, literal and, morphemes, like yeah. that the basic elements that get into it. But just to show you how difficult it is, so the U.S. government actually did a study on how long it takes a native English speaker to learn languages, and in the most difficult category, it takes. 88 weeks or 2,200 hours of mm-hmm. work to get Chinese, Arabic, Japanese, or Korean. Hmm. And this will give you to speaking level three or reading level three, which is general professional proficiency. Okay. And so it's tough. I mean, if you look at the languages that are easier to learn, you end up not surprised. You have French, Dutch, Spanish, Romanian. It takes about a fourth of the time to get those languages down. And again, you you mentioned at the top of this, that's for English speakers. You could probably flip this this on its head. A Korean speaker would be able to learn perhaps Chinese easier Mm -hmm. than uh, French or Dutch or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And so for the first part, we're going to break this up into two parts. The first part, we're going to talk about just the differences between the two languages. So making it hard for an English person to learn Korean and also a Korean person to learn English. Mm. But then we're going to go into a little bit more detail on why it's specifically maybe more motivationally challenging, we can say, okay. for you and I to yes. learn Korean. Yeah. And that'll give us our excuse of why we can't speak <laughs> Korean. <laughs> well, you're always, I mean, forget um, the experience of being uh, in Korea and the social factors. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of in the classroom, you're always hitting this new hump, something that you've not yeah, really heard yeah. of, some new way of organizing thought and meaning in the Korean yeah. space. I'm actually, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, I'm actually missing a... Uh, midterm test in my Korean class right now as we speak. Really? So it's kind of ironic that... Confessions how with Alex Sigrist. Yeah. <laughs> well... Language learning is important. I mean, I'm not doing it, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get you the makeup test. Uh, uh, the, the, where are the biggest differences? All right. Well, the first thing I want to do is talk about a huge difference that we sort of misattribute as a problem for us, which is this idea that the Chinese roots of a culture make it harder for somebody who is learning English, Mm -hmm. or sorry, learning Korean, to jump over. And the the main reason behind this is very simply, uh, it's when you use this argument, a lot of times we forget about pattern-based learning. Mm. So people that are good at pattern recognition, 
um, can are actually much better at learning Korean in this regard. And a simple example is just school, school and hakyo. And uh, these basic roots, we have Latin. We can actually anchor our roots into a Latin-based language where we have skull, scholar, mm-hmm. scholastic. In the same way, as long as we can, in our mind, do a quick translation, then you go into hakyo, haksu, or, mm-hmm. or sorry, hangyok. I may have been wrong on that, but yeah. just hak. Haksang. Yeah, so I think that's the weakest argument that we end up using, and it actually does not carry any weight as far as you know, when we throw research at it. Okay. So the the whole cognates argument, yeah. uh, the fact that we don't know have this library of cognates and yeah. roots of words, mm-hmm. is it's there, but it's not the strongest argument. Right, right. So going into what we talked about earlier, I think morphemes was one of the biggest arguments that we can use to say why it's difficult, why it takes twenty two hundred hours to m- master this language. Define morpheme for us. So morphine is basically the fundamental building block block of a language. T- take for example. Kicks. He kicks. So you have the word kick. Can you break down kick into more parts? Kicking is just one action, right, mm. in a way? Mm. Now, in the same way, that S, that tiny little S, is also a morphine. You can't break it down because that S also gives you information, such as it must be a he, she, or it. You know, the, it's a third-person singular form. Mm. So anything that gives you information that then cannot be broken down anymore, that would be a morpheme. So a morpheme is sort of this uh, fundamental, elemental block of meaning the way a phoneme is an elemental block of sound, like mm-hmm. ah or ooh or something like that. Right, right. And we'll get into that uh, actually just next. Good. But yeah, so when we're talking about it, it's there's so many different ways to give an example, and I think we just did kicks. Let's go ahead and talk and talk about that. So looking at the Korean language and the English language, let's look at a simple verb ending, which is S, or maybe sumnida, umnida, mm. or hamnida, whatever it may, may be there. Okay. So we have to completely rethink the way that we create the language, how we put together. So the building blocks are different, so we have to recreate it. In Korea, it's obviously based on the pre- presence of a consonant, whether or not you use simnida or just the umnida, uh, mm-hmm. a form of it. And so when you think about it, you're focused more on the base stem of the word. Now, in English, our focus is clearly on subject-verb agreement. Okay. Whether it's a he, she, it, we, or they. And so... These morphemes, the, the differences in our morpheme structure, I, for me personally, I think, is the biggest argument of why it's hard for us to figure it out. When you're translating something in your head, you have to we, – we can't subconsciously think about it. We have to sometimes actively think about – uh, how to add the simnida or umnida form to it, right? Sure. We're, we're caught up in the, the mechanics of the, the sentence structure, whereas uh, ideally, once we master that, it's almost like music and, and uh, you know, major scales and things like that. You can go straight to what it means rather than getting hung up on the mechanics, right? Right, exactly. And just one more part to go into the structure. I mean, we're going to glaze over this because we talked about it earlier, but yeah, obviously sentence structure itself is also hard. How do you construct a sentence where in Korea you end with a verb and don't even necessarily need a subject present in the sentence. Correct, yeah. But uh, again, that's something that we all can talk about while we're having a pint at, you know, in Itaewon. So <laughs> that's not as interesting for this subject. Yeah. So let's do some basic sound differences too, the phonetics of it all. Mm-hmm. So we'll 
you know, be sympathetic to Koreans as well. There's a lot of English consonant sounds that do not exist in Korea. The theta sounds, the th, then, 13, close as well. The distinctions between V, B, and F Mm -hmm. are are sounds that make it hard for a Korean to jump to uh, English, right? Yes. So... I was trying to figure out exactly what was hard. What was hard for us to go the other way around? But I have. I know right off the bat. Which what's like your hardest thought? Uh, double consonants. Oh, da. You know, <laughs> ba. Uh, oh, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I, I I can't hear it, and oftentimes I have trouble pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, so we don't work on our aspirations as much in America. We don't focus on that. It's not something we worry about. Mm. It. And I had to do a test. You can test yourself by putting your hand in front of your mouth and seeing how much air comes out. Yeah. And that's how they taught us to do it. But uh, as a side story on that, when I was learning Korean, this is something that Koreans who are not teachers and even some teachers have a really difficult time explaining. So the, there's a teaching difference. They can't really get us to that level. If you take something like the, the K sound or the G sound, mm-hmm. And you put it at the beginning of the word. It's so, for us. It's like um, kind of a, a K, a K. It's a usually keok or something. Like mm-hmm. you hear a little bit more aspiration when you put it in the middle, like dege. Mm-hmm. That that aspiration completely went away. And I tried getting a Korean teacher to explain it to me, and it wasn't until I I told her to put the hand in front of her mouth that mm-hmm. yeah you no no yeah, that, there's a difference that soft uh, what is it called a keok yeah uh, that is a combination G and K. We have two completely separate letters for that. Yeah. Then they have the aspirated K, right? Right, right. Um, Oh, so here's another bit of my past. I don't know if you know. I used to live in Japan for three years when I was was younger. And so I have a kind of a unique experience in that I lived in Japan for three years. I was fluent for a six-year-old, if that makes sense. When I left Japan, I was roughly fluent in Japanese. So... There are sounds, uh, again, in the English language that just don't exist in Korean or Japanese. I actually had to get speech therapy because I couldn't say R's, L's, uh. and S's correctly. And, I, and on top of that, I couldn't actually do consonant blends. So your name, Sigrist, must have been a real challenge. Sigristo or something. <laughs> yeah. I think in Korean, too, it's like Sigristo or yeah. something like that. Okay. So these consonant blends, there are just so many parts phonetically. We talked about morphemes earlier. uh was... But also phonetically, there are so many differences that make it hard for us to jump over. The Korean uh, diphthongs, the double vowels, too. I can't say month still. I'm level six in like... Month? Like, Gay one? Well, like... Well, uh, well, if I put one by itself, I sound like... Well, uh, you know. Well, okay. uh, so diphthongs <laughs> yeah. have, have also been known to be uh, especially hard for uh, English speakers. Sure. Yeah. All right, so that's just the phonemes. I mean, if you manage to pronounce the stuff, okay, with all the aspirations, (laughs) the double letters, and things like that, then you start to uh, get into the weeds of meaning and uh, grammar structure. Yeah. And there's a whole lot to throw you for a loop there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is going to be, this is something that, again, I have a really hard time finding research on because a lot of people don't look at this individually. So this is a little bit of my personal thoughts. So I kind of want your intake too, Kurt, if, if you can. When we're making, language we've talked about the sub like what we're thinking subconsciously do you have to think about the structure of a, a verb or not while you're making it so let's look at the reasons we use formality and just very simply koreans use formality for what what would you say they use formality for uh differences in social uh position correct yeah yeah so it's kind of a way to show humility in a way right mm. you are showing reference to the deference to the person who's uh, across from you sure. and so your focus your mental focus that you've already internalized is kind of the collective the group like looking outside 
Whereas why do we as Americans, and I'm sure for other English-speaking countries, why do we use formality? When do we use formality? That, that's an interesting question. It is. I, I suppose it, yeah. uh, for unfamiliar situations, right? When you're just first meeting somebody, you'll be quite a bit more formal or, mm-hmm. again, with... St- significant differences in social standing, like, you know, you're talking to the president or something like that. Right, right. And a lot of the times, and I was thinking back to my own experiences, you realize we use formality to sound intelligent. The focus is now on us. We use larger ah, how words. Interesting. Okay. We take we we don't say gonna say I am going I'm to. Going to yeah. so we we spread out words. So when we focus on it, we focus on the individual, on the self. And so our subconscious is working against us if we're trying to then switch over to Korean because now, like you said earlier, we have to actively think about then showing respect to the person across from us as opposed to just us trying to sound smart in front of. So it's, it's a bit of the individualism versus collectivism focus. Very interesting to demonstrate that I've, you know, I'm educated or I'm right, right. ready to take on this job or something. I'll formalize my language. That's fascinating. Right, right. So now I guess we can, we've talked about the differences in languages, which I think everyone kind of knew if they didn't know how to explain, but we went into more depth about it. Now I think we should move on to why <laughs> our excuses. This is why, <laughs> this is why I, and I do believe this is true. This is specific to English speakers, why it's more difficult to learn the language. And again, we're going to talk about something that we sort of maybe know, but don't know how to explain, or maybe people don't have the facts about it. And the first thing I want to talk about is bilingualism. Okay. Now, bilingualism, what, what would that have to do with learning a language? What, what do you think? Uh, I suppose, wow, that's interesting. If you're natively bilingual, mm-hmm. you've got two complete separate frames of reference, and maybe you are empowered to learn a third language easy, more easily than the monolingual. That's just my guess. Yeah, it's a good guess. So research shows that those who are bilingual actually do find it much, much easier to acquire a third language than those who are not trying or than those who are not when they're trying to acquire a second language. And interestingly, I also found out um, that it actually improves your proficiency in your original language when you do this, which at first I was like, oh, no, because my English level in Korea has gone down. I don't use those big words anymore. But actually, yeah, as you when you have it as a point of reference to be able to cross reference it, you're because you have language. this whole other basket yeah. of morphemes or bundles of meaning, mm-hmm. and sometimes your mind will go to the other language word and say, ah, what's the word in English for that? Sometimes yeah. there's not one. Exactly. So here are the statistics on that, basically. Uh, the, U- the European Commission carried out a survey mm-hmm. of their 25 member states, and can you guess which two countries had the lowest percent of bilingualism? i got to put the UK there. Yeah, the UK and uh, Ireland, where about only a third of them will speak more than one language Mm. or at least be bilingual. The rest speaking, of course, only English. And in America, it's at 25%. And the lowest uh, in the world is, I mean, unless you take out like, you know, native tribes that have been isolated, the lowest in the world is also isolated, which would be? Uh, Probably Australia or New Zealand. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Australia has the lowest level of bilingualism. And of course, that has a lot to do with Geographic reasons. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's a fair argument to make that ge- geography plays a huge role in our ability to learn Korean when you link these two. Now I'm talking about the collective here, not as an individual. Obviously, there's individuals in America who are bilingual, then therefore they can learn Korean a lot easier. But when you look at collective reasons why maybe it's harder for an American or an English person or an Irish person to learn it, mm-hmm. that I think is a very solid reason right there. So. 
that is how we're going to kind of, again, make our excuses as well. And of course, later on in life too, being bilingual has also proven to be beneficial in brain development. And so being bilingual can, then that's why it makes it easier to learn that second language. It helps keep your brain active. And this is the best argument for even if you're, you know, middle-aged or older, you know, there's always the excuse, oh, I wasn't a kid, so it's impossible to learn that language. But it's still good for you to try because it's kind of firing the neurons in all of these parts of the brain that will keep your brain, your overall brain, sharper. Yeah. And and just to kind of end on a a happier note, you know, I, I don't mean to say we shouldn't be learning Korean. I think one thing I have noticed learning Korean versus, say, learning French and something is that the rewards of learning such a difficult language, whether it be your brain functionality or whether the fact that they sort of embrace you more in society, the rewards of learning such a difficult language has had the benefits that you would expect of you know, from the effort that you've put forth. Yeah, and uh, at the end of the day, you want to be able to talk to the people that you're living around. Mm-hmm. That's Rock Scholar for this week. Alex, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And Koreascape is produced by Christina Saul with associate production by Jamie Lee. Writing is done by GP1. I'm Kurt Asian. Remember to follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Koreascape. Join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. We're back with the first in a two-part series on a rite of passage for Korean males, military service. That's tomorrow's Did You Know? We'll see you then.